0: Welcome back to the 5th Estate podcast from the Wheeler Center. Taped live at the Wheeler Center on Tuesday, August 1st, this episode is all about immigration. Here's the 5th Estate's host, Sally Warhaft, with Shen Narayana Sami and Munjid Almaderis.
1: I met Munjid Almaderis last year at a conference and uh, as soon as I heard him speak, I said, "Please come to our little our little uh, event at the Wheeler Centre and share your story Um, and I'm so thrilled that you've come down from Sydney and made it through security. It's astonishing they let you through, Munjad. Munjad is a, he is an orthopaedic surgeon a squadron leader in the Australian Air Force Reserve, an ambassador for the Australian Red Cross, a human rights activist and a volunteer doctor. He's one of three surgeons in the world, pioneering technology known as Osseointegration, which uh, is a reconstructive and robotic surgery that helps amputees improve the quality of their lives and he's also an author of this marvellous memoir Walking Free which you can get um, at the end of this event and he's working on another book and it's hard to believe they let you into the country at all really Munjen.
2: Yeah it's
1: just fabulous to have you here thank
2: you. Thank you thanks for having me.
1: And uh, yeah. Shen uh, Narayana Swami is a human rights campaign director for GetUp and the founder of the No Business in Abuse Project, which targets corporate involvement in offshore detention. And Shen also uh, led the Let Them Stay campaign, which prevented the deportation of hundreds of asylum seekers to Nauru. And uh, more recently, uh, GetUp's response to the federal government's attempts to change the Racial Discrimination Act have taken up a lot of her time. Uh, Shen worked as a human rights lawyer and advocate and last year delivered the Die Gribble argument for the Wheeler Centre, which is uh, one of our uh, most important and, uh, events and, and one very close to Wheeler Centre's heart. So welcome, Shen. It's great to have you back. Um, Monjed, let's uh, start with you and uh, a sort of setting the scene of... Your personal journey to get here, because it is an astounding story that began in a a hospital in Baghdad and ended uh, at the Curtin detention centre. So, just give us a a brief outline of what happened.
2: Well, I was I was born in Iraq. I um, lived 27 years in Baghdad. I never thought that I would leave the country. I was very comfortable. Actually, I was living in a bubble because my family were wealthy and. uh, everything was fine until the moment where I was a first-year resident in Baghdad University Hospital, uh, where um, I was confronted with three busloads of army deserters escorted by Republican guards and Ba'ath Party members. And they ordered um, us to abandon the elective list and uh, start um, amputating these army deserters' ease off. Um, so um, the head of the department refused and openly said this is... Um, uh, a crime, and it's against um, uh, the Hippocratic oath, uh, do no harm. So um, basically they dragged him out to the car park, they put a bullet in his head in front of everybody, and they turned to the rest of us and said, well, now we attracted your attention. Anyone uh, share this guy's view, come forward, otherwise proceed with our orders. So that was the most challenging moment in my life where I had to make a decision um, whether I should... uh, um, obey the commands and live with guilt for the rest of my life, or should I escape? And I decided to run away. And um, from there onward, I um, um, left Iraq. I became a traitor to Saddam Hussein's regime. And um, um, mind you, if you fly under the radar uh, with Saddam Hussein, you don't interfere with his business. Um, Saddam was kind of... um, Uh, a secular dictator, and I'm not trying to defend him, but uh, Iraq now is a religious lunatic place. Um, I'm going to Iraq in three weeks, so I don't want my head to be chopped off as a result of what I'm gonna say, but anyway, um, I don't care. I mean, um, 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 he was, um, people talk about Saddam um, in unjustifiable way. They say that he killed the Kurds, which is rubbish. He, they say he killed the Shiites and gas people. That's all rubbish. Saddam was very fair. He killed everybody basically, so, so he didn't discriminate, and that's true. He killed his own uh, son-in-laws. He he uh, fired a scud missile on his own village actually because um, one of his cousins uh, tried to um, lead an uprising against him. So. If you interfere with his business, then you're in trouble. So That's why I had to run away and escape. And um, as a result of that, I en- ended up in Australia on a leaky boat that was not seaworthy. Um, and um, I didn't have a choice. Um, I did not choose to come to Australia. I did not know that I was going to Australia until the moment I was told that there is a boat coming to Australia. And if you ask me, would I do it again? You bet, because I had no other choice. Hmm.
1: Um, and uh, you know, it, it, the, st- the st- details of this story are compelling and they are in the memoir starting with the moment uh, that a shot was fired and hid in a women's change room for five hours just to get out of the hospital. Um, it's an amazing, amazing story. Um, I I want to ask you too briefly before I get to you, Shen, about um, you returned in May for the first time um, to, uh, well, see hundreds of potential patients uh, for uh, surgery, which you're going back in three weeks to to actually do. Um, What was it like to go back there?
2: Well... You know, I do a lot of crazy things in my day-to-day work and my day-to-day life. And I live on the edge most of the time. But um, to tell the truth, landing um, in Baghdad was one of the scariest things. And I looked at, through the window and I said, shit, what have I done to myself? <laughs> and uh, But then, um, you know, within hours, um, um, all my fears... Um, uh, disappeared because uh, you could feel the warmth and the genuine welcome uh, among people, and um, they are really desperate for help, and um, and they want to get back on their feet, and they want to get that country going. I mean, um, they're sick of fighting, and they're sick of um, 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 hating each other based on ethnicity and religion, and and um, and uh, basically. Um, um, identity. Um, and they just want to move on. And there is a lot of wounds that need to heal. And um, I'm I'm honoured and humbled to be um, trying to be part of this uh, healing process. Shen, uh, your story is very different. You're the
1: daughter of English migrants of South Indian descent. Tell us uh, about what your personal experience uh, immigration uh, within your family, your sense of it is?
0: Well, I think um, my conclusions in, in terms of my family's, um, which has kind of led me to some of this work, is the immigration story is really complex. And often we try to tell it in refugee or economic migrant or deserving or undeserving or scared for their lives or not quite scared for their lives because they don't fit the UN persecution reasons. And I think in my family, we've come from Tamil background, including Sri Lankan Tamil, Indian Tamil, and then Malaysian Tamil. Um, Different people have moved for different reasons and under different categories at different points in time. So I've got people in my family who came as refugees, got people who came as economic migrants, It was funny, my mother, so my parents were born in Malaysia and then went to England where they had 10 glorious years. I think they went to that festival. What was it? Woodstock. So I think they had a great time. And as far as I can tell, my dad didn't want to leave and it took me ages to work out why. Um, And then when Pauline Hanson was elected, my mother said, well, this is what we left Malaysia for and this is why we left England and now it's happening here. I said, you never told me that was why you left England. I thought you came to Australia because it was warm. And she said, no, we were having a glorious time. And then the anti-pucky stuff happened. And mum was working um, as a nurse. She was actually as a midwife in some of the estates where rocks were being thrown through the windows. I was like, I didn't, my mother's a great defender of the British Empire. Um, and I was like, you said the word racism, what do you mean? She was like, well, you know, I just thought I didn't want you to grow up the way I grew up. I was like, well, you never said that before. So I think it's testament to the complexity of it.
1: The um, changes in the Australian narrative, I suppose, of immigration uh, have been both political and cultural. Mm -hmm. And they've been sweeping in both uh, the law and in attitudes, which are now pretty much embedded, I think, and supported by both major parties and the majority of the public. the whole conversation of the political class is about deterrence. Uh, I just wonder what your sense of
0: key moments and how did this
1: happen, Shen?
0: Well I think from my perspective um, there's a massive gap in this almost more than any other issue in this country between what the public rhetoric is and what the practical reality on the ground is. So the key statistic for me, which illustrates this, was when I went searching for what our migration statistics were in the year, in the height of the boat crisis in 2013. You know, when we were getting hundreds of boats and it was absolute pandemonium and you were getting tabloid television shooting boat after boat after boat. So we had 25,000 people come that year. And I went looking in our migration statistics, because of course all all of the rhetoric at the time is about what an absolute imposition this is going to be, what a definitive threat this is. So one would expect that our national immigration figures for that year were maybe 25,000 or something, so this was an equivalent number. And one, it was incredibly difficult to find an overall figure, and the statistics and the categories of visas were really difficult to work out. But after adding them all up, I came to the conclusion that there was around 800,000 visas issued that year for a variety of temporary and permanent residents, excluding tourists, to come to our country. And I thought, 800,000? You've got to be kidding me. Mm. That's more in a fortnight that came by boat that entire year. So that led me on a kind of chase into this question. And how did this happen, that the statistics and the fact that they paint a picture of one of the highest immigration intakes this country has ever seen over the last 15 to 20 years, how did that sit alongside an absolute panic that had defined our political class around boats? And I go back to that moment, if you want to know about specific moments, and I remember it of John Howard thumping the lectern just before that election, where he said, we decide who comes into this country and the circumstances in which they come. And to me, it started there.
2: Mind you that at that time, out of these 800,000, there were 62,000 overstays.
0: Yes, yes.
2: That remained in Australia. So these are statistics, these are figures, actual figures. And if you look at the the global statistics, at the same time that these 25,000 that came to Australia, there were 130,000 that entered Germany... There were equivalent number that entered Sweden, Norway, and Finland, and there were uh, significant numbers that I can't recall exactly uh, that entered Holland and France and Italy. So so there was a big wave of um, shift of people due to crisis in areas that involved most of the Western world. So we were not Selected as a matter of fact, Australia geographically is isolated, and um, and we are kind of far away from from anywhere, and and politicians try to play the game of saying that if we ease up our our uh, policies and um, uh, against boat people, uh, Indonesia will be flooded with uh, with with um, refugees, and that is kind of bullshit.
0: Mm. This is... Oh, sorry. This is the interesting thing, because what for me was was like, well, there's the extent to which the entire argument is, as you say, bullshit. And then the question for me, though, is, hang on. When we had 800,000 people, that was unusual. Like, our migration intake massively jumped under John Howard. So it's not just when we look at the statistics that it's a bullshit argument. It's that it's a deliberate con. Well, the
1: precision of that, it was 2001, that speech, and it was uh, his, I think it was the Liberal Party's election launch Mm. when he made that comment. And the precision of it and how right he was actually makes it one of the most important remarks, I think, ever Mm. uh, given by a leader in Australia because he meant it and it, it became true. I, I just want to ask one, Jed, As somebody who came here on a boat and spent 12 months in a d- detention centre where, by chance, Philip Ruddock uh, visited at that time as the Minister for Immigration and happened to tell you you'd never practice medicine in Australia, um, how do you... I'm sure he's really glad you are practicing medicine, but how do you... Feel about about that rhetoric versus the reality of the
2: statistics. Look, I, I look at things very objectively, and um, uh, um, I don't have any feeling toward the policies. I mean, policies are made for a reason. Politicians put policies in order to get votes, um, and that's very. Um, obvious and very clear way of doing things and and looking at John Howard, John Howard is a very, very intelligent, very smart politician and he knew what is needed at that time. However, I, I kind of disagree with you on, on a point that you said that this is embedded in our society and it's, um, it's deep. I don't see that with people that I meet. I mean, I've been told to go back where I come from maybe two or three times, and I meet hundreds, if not thousands, of people. So the vast majority of people that I meet, maybe I'm, I'm meeting a selective um, a group of people that are not representing the the wider community of Australians, which I doubt that, uh, because I see all um, uh, sections of, uh, of the Australian uh, society. I think... Um, it it is it, true that there is a lot of goodness inside Australians, and Australians, if they're educated about a subject, they would choose the right thing. And um, um, Pauline Hansen and Tony Abbott have played a card about what's going on globally around the world with the fear tactics and and the and the and the scare about these foreigners coming to our shores. So. So I, I, I don't see that this is a permanent view about the Australian public. I think that things change if people are educated properly about it. 65 million... Point 0.5. Point 0.5 uh,
1: refugees in the world right now. Yep. What, what do you do? What does Australia do and what does the rest of the well, world do?
2: Well, oh, I want uh, to hear from both the, of you. The, yeah. This is a major problem. I mean, we are facing the biggest crisis in in the history of the globe. Okay, the Second World War resulted in um, um, a displacement of around 50 million people. We have more people displaced nowadays. Um, there are 60, 65.5 million people that are displaced. 500,000 of them are in urgent need. A lot of them are dying daily. Um, now, do we open our gates to everybody and let everybody in? Of course not. Uh, do we let the boats come? Of course not. We need to stop the boats. But. What we can do, Australia, in my opinion, is a country that is that has legal obligation toward the international community. We are a signatory to the Refugee Convention Article 1951. We were one of the first countries that signed this document, and we have an obligation by law toward this. And um, as a result of that, we need to have our fair income share of our legal and um, moral and ethical obligation toward human beings. Um, Australia, as proudly uh, announced by our politicians regularly, that is a major contributor to the UNHCR program um, of you know, settling refugees. But again, this is plain with words because the UNHCR program represents less than 1% of the crisis solution. Um, the UNHCR camps are inefficient they're small they're they're very few and it is expected that a person that is born in a refugee camp to die an elderly person in that refugee camp before settlement and that's not acceptable and that's why would you blame anyone to go and seek um, refugee with the help of people smugglers I don't think anyone would do that if you, if you expect that you are born and then you die and that, it's not fair for anyone.
0: <coughs> well, I think um, largely, yes. But the I- interesting thing for Australia, I think, is it's not so much that it's a global crisis and um, somehow Australia is being expected to do more than it needs to. It's that at the moment, our economy is largely powered by immigration We have seen the highest period of immigration this country has almost ever seen. We have 1.4 million temporary migrants here right now. So the question is, Why is it that we have a situation where refugees and asylum seekers are split off and somehow granted a tiny amount of visas in that overall cohort? And what is the way we can use even the existing number, even the existing number of visas that we issue, to smartly and in some horrible way almost take advantage of what's happening and offer places? that question, like let's not even get into compassion, let's just get into absolute bare bones of what this country's doing at the moment, which is growing largely on the back of immigrant labor and immigrants coming into this country, and ask ourselves what, in what way can we use existing tools available to assist in what is, as Munjed rightly says, one of the world's biggest crises. And that question, why that isn't happening, why we're not having an honest conversation about migration, why John Howard never, ever, ever said, one of my greatest legacies is the amount of immigrants I brought in. Like that, that question is what needs to be answered in this country before we can get there. Because we could offer 1.4 million visas right now, and that's one sixtieth.
1: So, why hasn't that been
0: able to happen? If
1: if what Munjed says is true, that Australians really are big-hearted, uh, and there's such a logic uh, in terms of the numbers,
2: I, I think it's the it's the it's the fear. Um, unfortunately, human beings forget about history. History is very important, and if you read history, you'll see that a lot of People came to power based on fear and based on scare tactics. And if you look at, I mean, I saw one politician the other day um, talking about jobs, 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 and we keep Australian jobs for Australians. For God's sake, I watched a documentary about someone saying the same thing in the 30s. And this person did not come to power back then by force. He came by popular vote. And he took off one-third of the Reichstag, and then he burned it. And look what happened. So we need to be careful. Education is very important. We need to protect this country. We need to protect this country from people that may come with power hungry and with scare tactics that change our society from a peaceful society that's loving that's accommodating that's accepting and tolerating each other to a society that all what it cares about is that we need to protect our color we need to protect our race factually the world is changing and it's becoming a one village of different colors and this is irreversible. It will not change. We just need to be very careful. Well, it's one village though
1: where walls are going up, uh, sometimes mm. literally, sometimes you know, disappearing. And a lot are going down. Um,
0: <laughs> In different ways. Yeah. This is this is the thing about it, I think, because Munjad's right. The 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 social fabric of this nation and the stories we tell ourselves about it in many ways are good ones, but we have seen 15 to 20 years of non-stop and in fact heightened signalling to the electorate or blatancy to the electorate, um, blatant misinformation. John Howard saying one thing on one hand and on the other hand presiding over an unrestricted immigration program in which we didn't decide at all, the business community decided. Um, we have all lived a situation. I mean, ask who will clean half the office buildings in the city. We all know, all of us, um, that temporary migrant labour has come to characterise a country where rapid access to citizenship and all the equality that that brings with it was one of the foundation stones of our multiculturalism. It's under attack and it is in a really, really big way and the latest changes the government puts forward are an example of that. And I think... It's not even just that fear has worked. It's that it is now at the point where both major parties have put themselves in this situation that no one wants to be the first to explain to the electorate what's actually gone on. And then, of course, you've got Pauline Hanson rising on the scene. So even those people with good intentions, potentially, who wish to have an honest debate, who support immigration, etc., they are concerned. About even having this debate in this context.
2: But, but hang on, I I wouldn't say that Pauline Hanson has bad intention.
0: No, I think she intends, in her own way, good.
2: Yeah, I mean, and, and that's 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 a very important point. I mean, she has a view, and I I respect her view. Um, she just have a different view, and and in my opinion, and I strongly uh, support that. People like Pauline Hanson, people like who want to have Australia for only white Australians um, need to have their opportunity of expressing their views and they need to be heard. Um, There is a lot of uh, genuine concern among a lot of people about these foreigners that are coming from outside and trying to invade our country and trying to bring terrorism and trying to bring... Islam fundamentalism, or whatever you call it, and I have a poor Sikh radiographer with me, and I always call him the terrorist. Um, but but he has nothing. Actually, as a matter of fact, his religion was based on killing Muslims because Hindus wouldn't, um, and um, because they the, the, the Sikh religion is the only religion that came to uprise against the uh, the Muslim rulers back then, and he has been uh, treated. Um, so badly because he wore a turban on his head and everybody called him, uh, you're a Muslim terrorist. And, and and these kind of people need to be educated about what's going on and need to be educated. And at the same time, their concerns need, need to be addressed and need to be heard. And all I'm saying is that I would not marginalize any view. And all views need to be heard and all views need to be addressed and a dialogue is important in this country. It is time that we should have a dialogue. Sadly, the liberals have gone one way and the labor is following and not having um, a a genuine um, substantial point of view and agenda. And um, they're kind of lost when it comes to migration um, uh, policies.
0: Well, they can't, they have to admit what they've done first, I think, is the difficulty that they're having. Because, and I think there was a comment in the last election that one of the Liberal MPs made, and she said, I'm so glad we've stopped the boats because the traffic on the M3 is going to be better (laughs) in Sydney. And of course, everyone laughed, I laughed. Because it's like, you fool, it's not, it's not, I mean, there's no direct connection whatsoever between anybody arriving on a boat and and the M3. But there is increased traffic on the M3. And you, you can't get away with telling people that you've stopped the boats and telegraphing that you've essentially stopped unrestricted immigration and hope that people don't notice that that, in fact, is not the case. What happens is people even... Uh, MPs get confused about exactly who those foreigners particularly are or their method of arrival. But it it was always, and and this is the problem, because you can't have an authentic conversation with Pauline Hanson unless you say, we have had massive immigration in this country. It has increased under my government, and this is why. And do you think that's come out of the mouth of Tony Abbott?
2: I don't think anything can come out of the mouth of Tony
0: Abbott.
2: (laughs) slogans, can.
1: Um Your experience of 12 months at the Curtin uh, Detention Centre, you described as dehumanising. You were only ever addressed by a number, number 982. Uh, and I um, I wanted to ask both of you, uh, Munjid, first about the class action settlement that uh, happened recently between the Manus Island detainees and the Australian government. Um, It was the biggest human rights settlement, I think, in our history, $70 million. Uh, And what do you think that meant politically and whether there was a loss in not having that story
2: aired? Look, uh, unfortunately, I mean, when we were in detention centre, there was a huge secrecy about it. And I was... Um, one of the people that I'm, I'm proud to say that I was a pain in the butt in the gov- for the government because I um, uh, I caused a lot of problems um, in the 2000 especially uh, coming up to the to the Olympics um, the minute I entered the detention center I was stripped off uh, my humanity I was marked with a with a permanent marker on my shoulder with 982 and that was my name for the rest of time we were held in a, in a detention center behind barbed wires and the compounds were separated. There was Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, um, and Delta, Foxtrot, and I spent a lot of time in the hotel, which is the special area. Um, and, um, and we were locked from 7 p.m. till 7 a.m. In the morning, we were head counted four times and you have to stand in a queue for two to three hours under the heat of this uh, Western Australian desert sun. Um, to be head-counted, and then they come and head-count you after midnight. and um, uh, So it was absolutely humiliating. All of that I can understand, but what I couldn't understand is that at some stage we were 1,252 people. Among us there were 117 minors. Uh, a lot of these children were unaccompanied minors, and we were in the desert in tents, no surveillance cameras. And Australia is the only country that incarcerates children, mind you. Uh, with adults, um, and that's wrong, and that should stop. You cannot imagine the situation in the detention centre, I mean, I describe it as hell, but I can compare it to the Australian prison system, okay? Um, I was honoured to be visiting a lot of Australian jails uh, as a prisoner uh, because of the trouble that I caused in the detention centre. Not. Mind you, I didn't break a single law. All I did is write letters and take photos and smuggle them. So I was single dad as a troublemaker. So I went, um, you know, uh, Derby lockup was my favorite. Every weekend I used to spend a couple of days there. Um, Broome maximum security jail, I spent 40 days there. Caratha uh, jail, I spent some time there. And, um, and I'll tell you what, um, in the prison, it was fantastic. I was treated like a human being. I was called by my name. I was uh, given um, clean clothes, like look like scrubs, but different color. And um, uh, I was fed well, and, um, and I was treated with dignity. So comparing the jail, maximum security jail, to the detention center, it was like heaven and hell. And that may give you some perspective. So I strongly recommend the Australian jail system. <laughs> <laughs> so for when you get released from the detention centre obviously you lost. Uh, I was given temporary protection visa. I was told by several people to shut my mouth and um, TV and the media tried to come and talk to me and, um, and I was advised by people that I work with that don't do anything because you never know. They might deport you and things like that. But I, I didn't shut up. Um, uh, I kept going. Uh, but legally, I was not given any advice of what, what my rights are. And the government has this policy that you can you can take action against the government within three years. If that laps, then you lose your right, which I don't know where that come from. But I think the first-class action that happened... Um, is the first step in breaking that brick wall. Uh, That is very important for Australia. It is very important for Australian reputation internationally. It is very important to rectify um, what, what our politicians are doing wrong. I visit Europe regularly. Let's not talk about America because Americans don't know anything about anything except America. But Europeans are very educated and intelligent. Sorry, I don't mean to be harsh on Americans. I just had American visitors from Walter Reed, and they they think that they, they know it all. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but anyway, well, thank God they're gone. Um, they were sent by Trump to come and learn the robotic surgery. That's a different subject. We can talk about that later. Uh, but... I go to Europe a lot, and and um, you know, to give lectures about robotic surgery and things like that. And ironically, and funny enough, after a glass of champagne, when you have dinner with people, uh, they ask you the question, and it's common that this question is, "Aren't you ashamed of being Australian, the way you treat people?" And ironically, it, most of the time, it comes from Germans because they lived it, they have seen it, and they're ashamed of their past. I don't disrespect, and I don't mean by any any way to compare the two, but Australia is doing things that are not supposed to be done, and that is damaging our international reputation, And if our politicians continue to think that we can survive on China importing our iron ore and coal, we need to think again. We need to invest in human power. We need to invest in our reputation, in our international reputation, so people outside this country can do trade with us, so we can feed our children. And that is very important. As you correctly said, forget about the passion. Let's talk about numbers and economy, okay? We need to feed, we need to make sure that our countries survive and that our generations continue to, to live and thrive. And the only way we can do that, if we invest in human power, not by investing in what's under the ground, because China's not interested in our iron ore anymore. Africa is open, wide open, very cheap, a lot cheaper than Australia.
0: Shen,
1: what was your response to the, the settlement?
0: Well, I had a very similar European response to Munjed. So, first of all, it's not the first, unfortunately. And um, there, so, in the last year alone, Senate estimates, uh, excluding this class action, revealed that 230000 has already been spent in the last financial year on settlements of a similar kind around negligence in relation to our detention centres. So every year, and actually the government relied largely on the three-year expiry of some of these negligence class actions or actions altogether, every to- every year since detention's been there, mandatory detention, there have been actions, and we've been steadily paying it out. So, and, and this was the interesting thing about my European trip. So it was in the context of no business and abuse, which was as someone who's done refugee work for a long time, was a really fun campaign and kind of cathartic because what it required me to do was to stand in front of corporations, so this was two years ago, and at the time there was a five-year contract open for tender in the offshore detention centres. Billions of dollars, absolutely billions of dollars. Um, And 15 companies attended for it because it was an absolute mozza. Um, and, of course, it was completely bipartisan and legal in Australia, so why shouldn't we do it? And so my job was to go around to companies and their investors and their bankers in Europe uh, with a giant mound of evidence and just kind of go through the whole thing. And, you know, we'd get kind of halfway through it and they'd say, enough already. And you can watch the, over the course of the period of time, you can see, actually, the Transfield, which is a company that was running the detention centres at the time, their share price just dive. As you know, we'd go in and see Macquarie Bank and they'd pull out quietly and go in and see another bank and they'd pull out quietly and their share price just dives. And so final stop was Europe. And it was interesting in Europe because we did a report and I kind of thought, well, there's no point for the European banks. I thought, there's no point going. I mean, what else are we going to say? It's all in the report. And they kept calling and saying, can you come over? And I'd come over and I'd say, we we, we went to, I think, about 17 banks in about 12 days all across (coughs) Europe. Um, And I'd get there and I'd be like, well, it's kind of all in the report. they said, well, we just needed you here to verify that this isn't a complete fantasy. How is it possible that this is happening? Because this isn't the first class action. This is like the 20th time. Like, how is any company willingly undertaking work in an area which we know arises in a course in a um, course of action for both their own staff as well as the people they are supposedly looking after. Um, And at the end of that trip, right at the end, just as we were meeting the company itself, they announced that they were pulling out. And so on October 31 this year, this company is pulling out of the detention centres and then no one else is taking over. That's why the detention centres in Manus and Aru are supposedly closing, according to Minister Dutton, on October 31st this year, because no-one wants to touch them. Those 15 companies that are tendered for that contract, no contract, and as far as you know now publicly today, no-one will admit to tendering. So they're 15 ghost companies, because no-one wants to put up their hand and say they were anywhere near it. So I think, for me, the Manus class action was bittersweet. Because it's not that we don't know, it's completely not that we don't know. Um, And what we had the opportunity of doing at that point, and I think if I had to put a bet on it as as an activist in this area I would say that a week into that class action those centres would have closed that week and people would have been brought here, was what we would have had would have been streamed live court proceedings going through 200,000 documents which would have shown everything that people have told us, like Munjed, but in black and white. And there would have been cross-examination and it would have been streamed live into PNG, because that's what the lawyers had managed <clears> to extract from the government. But the government knows. So they paid $70 million, which in the context of the 5000000000 billion they've spent on offshore detention is not that much.
2: Can, can I just add one comment? I mean, do you know how much we're spending on our offshore visas uh, and uh, of offshore? De- sorry, not visas. Offshore detention uh, centres. Mm. Um, we spent in the last two years thirteen billion dollars.
0: So it's been five. But yet, yeah, well, so the overarching cost of offshore detention, including turnbacks, according to Save the Children report, is around thirteen, 13 and, and a half
2: billion yeah. dollars. So it's it's expected that I was told that um, that if every Refugee or boat person comes to Australia, we, or um, by boat, if we fly them in to Sydney, put them in a suit, and then send them to Harvard and give them a PhD degree, and then bring them back as a skilled migrant, we would be still saving money.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and that's a pathway, isn't it? That's
1: a migration pathway. Uh, Munget, I want to put in a bit of a word for American doctors. (laughs) I've got a bit of a soft spot for them for personal reasons. I like Americans. They're funny. I like Americans too. (laughs) But but in connection to our discussion, uh, the American Board of Anesthetists, as one example, have played an incredibly important role in America in uh, halting executions in many American states uh, in the same kind of, you know, pain in the neck way you were in the detention centre. They have really uh, caused some grief for people who just, you know, can't get enough of lethal injections. And there is a tradition, of course, of the um, the, the doctor's lens on human rights and also health practitioners more more generally. Tell us about the discussions you have with doctors from all over the world on these broader global issues of immigration and refugees.
2: Look, I mean, doctors are a slice of the community. Again, there are different views that doctors have, but what... Doctors commonly share is um, is what's uh, uh, what follows the Hippocratic oath that in general we swear an oath before we finish that do no harm, and and based on that you cannot harm a person in any way or form. So anything that that may lead directly or indirectly in harming a person that would be deemed wrong, basically. So so. I mean, I can't, you know, um, what do you call it? Sing to the, um, you know, um, preach to the choir, or <laughs> represent uh, all their yeah. voices at once. Yes, but but basically, I mean, um, uh, uh, doctors. There is no there is no discussion there because doctors always share the same view, and um, that I have, and um, and um, I must admit they have been very very supportive of um, uh, of me personally, and, and of views of human rights. And um, um, I have so many volunteers that come with me every time uh, we we go and do charity everywhere. And I have group of um, not just doctors, but nurses and physios and um, uh, prosthetists and um, other medical um, uh, professionals that are coming to Iraq with me, which it was absolutely astonishing surprise to me that um, you know, they know it's a war zone and they know that they can be killed, but the minute I said, who who's a volunteer? And and, um, and I had to uh, turn down a lot of people from, um, you know, uh, accepting their uh, volunteering to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Um, look, just before we get to your questions, I, Shen, I really want to ask you about uh, your particular focus on corporate uh, institutions in Australia, big banks, and uh, what uh, what's happening there that might be useful for for this debate?
0: Well, the the thing to know is that there is a reason John Howard and, and later governments did back high he immigration You don't like numbers. John Howard, do you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I concede every point you made about his intelligence. Um, he was
2: cute. <laughs> like, I, I like him. I, I might disagree with you there. <laughs>
0: I don't know, it's something about their nostril hair. But we can talk about that later. Um, and I think... So big business is the reason. You know, they, I mean, the Alan Fells inquiry, the Senate inquiries into temporary workers, I mean, there, there are people making a mozza out of this situation. You know, because we have largely and deliberately created the situation where many of the people now coming to this country are deliberately vulnerable, exploited and working under the minimum wage. So somebody's making money, and quite often it's business. But there are also, there are some structures around business that make it possible to have a fact-based or evidence-based discussion. So that was why it was kind of a breath of fresh air, because you didn't have to somehow try and transmit the complexity of the situation, the evidence base of the situation, in a three-word slogan. But business, I think, is going to be very interesting over the next few years as the immigration debate happens, whether people like it or not, and it already is. And the question's going to be is, is big business going to go out there and throw the amount of money and power behind talking to the Australian public about the importance of immigration, the way in which it's been fundamental to our economy, as they do about, you know, industrial reform, or are they not?
2: Th- that's a very important point. Do you mind if I just add something? Um, uh, the Canadians has, in my opinion, have done it right, and um, and they have this policy about having a refugee, um, and that's on many levels. As a family, you can buy a refugee. As a as a corporate, you can buy a refugee. And a lot of Canadians they go to the immigration minis- ministry and um, the minister requesting, "Where is my refugee? I want my refugees like." Uh, buying a dog or something but anyway beside the point that helps people and um, and um, they put uh, a solution that every Canadian is entitled to sponsor a refugee and you spend $27,000 I think and you get a refugee and as a result of that they build massive um, on the scale of um, you know certain provinces in Canada, um, workforce um, out of refugees, which benefit, it's a win-win situation, supported the economy, supported the industry, as well as um, sponsored people and got them out of their miserable situation and gave them a safe haven in Canada. And I don't know if we ever going to be as smart as that, but, but I hope that one day we will we'll get to that stage. I was giving a lecture um, or a talk um, with, the, with the immigration minister, the Canadian immigration minister, and their policy uh, is fantastic, and she was explaining that to University of New South Wales um, some time ago, and uh, it's, a, it's a great great way of doing things. I visit a lot of cities and, and towns around Australia um, with my big mouth. Um, and and what saddens me is that I go to Mackay and I see half of the city is empty. Shops are closing. Went to Launceston the other day, and again, during daylight, um, the main strip, the main street, half of the Half of the shops, and I try to go around and see what's going on because I do have genuine concern about what's going on in Australia um, and um, and there were a lot of shops for sale and and then at night I I um, um, I gave a talk uh, and we were in a pub and the, I think half of Launceston population was in that pub. And um, I started my talk by saying, oh, you guys are all having had surgery. You all have one head only. And <laughs> that didn't go well, by the way. <laughs> and and uh, I think they were all carrying the green flags. and So if you wonder uh, that why Launceston vote for One Nation next election, you know why. <laughs> um, but, but it's it's so sad. Uh, we can bring people, um, look, if you look at the economic part uh, of a solution, even if these refugees come and live on the Centrelink, and that's the argument about uh, you know a lot of politicians saying that these are economic migrants, well, hang on. We pay them Centrelink benefits, okay? They still have to go to the toilet and use toilet paper. They still have to go and cut their hair. They still have to go and buy coffee from the coffee shop, okay? So that money will generate income for Australians. I mean, we need to think smarter.
1: If you'd like to ask a question, uh, put up your hand and start speaking the moment a microphone is, uh, is in it, gentlemen gentleman first. Hello, um, I've enjoyed your, the conversation so far. One of the things we talk about is the bubble that we all live in. I have particular networks and so on, and so it's not often that I mix in other areas. Now I can say that you know, we know, generally speaking, the demographic that we're talking to here. How do we talk to those other demographics, those other people that are following Pauline Hansen's Facebook page and Twitter account and rah, 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 how do we get to them? Because that seems to me to be the, one of the big single issues that we have.
0: Well, I think there's, there's two ways. I'm happy to jump in. Um, so we tried this with Let Them Stay. So if no business and abuse was around evidence, Let Them Stay was our attempt to say, okay, if you want to play three word slogans, is there a way that we can talk to the Australian public and shift public opinion on refugees and asylum seekers, just talking about shifting opinion? And it did. Over the course of that campaign, public opinion shifted 15% in our favour, which would win you an election three times over. And what it did was, was talk to in essence, the reality of the fear that people were facing and basically say, these people are just like you. It was basically, in all intents and purposes, what I would turn an anti-racism campaign. It leapt over the, um, the fear and the myth and everything that had been thrown at the Australian population and directly showed them another human being and their story and we tested every day how to tell that story. You know, because you, you have to reduce people to a couple of facts about them. What do we say about them? Do we say they like Beyoncé? Genuinely worked. Um, you know, what are the what are the things about other people we need to know to not fear them? Um, so first of all, that. But second, I think people aren't stupid. And so notwithstanding that there is a significant cohort of Australia that hold racist views, there always has been, and there is, it's around 10%. But at the end of the day, if you create a situation in which people are finding life difficult, they are seeing their wages go down in real terms, they are seeing, at the end of the day, immigrants coming into communities and somehow getting jobs, paid lesser wages and thinking something's not quite right here, it's very easy for the locus of that hatred and fear to come onto the migrant or the outsider, um, and so I think that one of the other ways, other than running significant anti-racism at its basis, work in this country, significant work about representing who we are as a community, which is not, you know, the the rainbow on this panel, not very rainbow, but a little bit rainbow, um, is Australia now. You know, like uh, unfortunately, our stories are not that unusual there's more people of of non-white or or non-European background in this country than there are proportionately, according to the last census, African-Americans in America. Think about that for a moment. Think of our TV screens. It doesn't look anything like the representation of African-Americans in American TV. Not that the situation is that great over there, but... this myth we tell ourselves has to be dealt with, but the other way is we have to have an honest debate. I think we can win that debate. We wouldn't do this kind of work if we didn't. But I think if there's enough to fall back on in this country, there's enough good people out there that if you have an honest debate, if you offer a solution that isn't about focusing on the migrant, but instead on focusing on who's benefiting from the migrant being treated in this way and what a country should look like and should be like, the solutions are not that hard. So I think there are ways, but I think it involves acknowledging what is at the heart of of the fanciful debate around numbers that we've had that is really about fear and about race, and secondly, about having an honest debate about policy, because both major parties lying essentially about what's been happening actually doesn't serve anyone um, uh, look um,
2: the, the way I look at it obviously every one of you here got out of their chairs and came here to join in this in this meeting so obviously you are interested and you have um, passion about what is going on so I think I think the way to uh, to address it and to and to get out of the Bubble, as you say, is that by keep talking about it, and uh, and believe me, I get asked all the time, why you bother, why don't you just mind your own business and uh, and just do your work and do hip and knee surgery, which is boring as batshit, shit, I tell you what, um, but it feed the children, but. Uh, uh, But I I tell you what, I, I do have concern about my children. I do have concern about the future of this country. And that's why I do what I do. And I think if you speak to one person and you manage to educate them and enlighten them about the facts, then that's another person you changed. And then that person may change another person, another person, and it will snowball. So things do happen if you act and if you move and it has the multiplier effect.
1: I just want to add really quickly too, because you made the point about this room, and I get the point, the broader point, it's Wheeler Centre in Melbourne on a Tuesday night, talking about refugees. Uh, but I know, I absolutely know, that there are people in this room with every view under the sun, and that there are so, on this issue, and there are so many assumptions made um, around this topic that uh, i always just think don't ever assume anything about what people think uh, about anything until they say it out loud or write it down
2: yep. i mean i mean i love it I, I i give talks like three times four times a week and i get Shouted at, and I get swore at, and and I love it because it's fantastic. It creates a lot of dynamics, and and it energises the room, and people enter a debate. And a lot of the time, people say, "Oh no, we're not here to. We're here to listen to to this view." And I said, "No, on the contrary, we have to listen to all views, and we have to enter this dialogue. And that's how we all learn from each other."
1: Despite what you say about um, MacKay and the empty shops. Yep like with 65 million refugees around the world, um, the question of overpopulation doesn't seem to get raised, which would ameliorate the situation, uh-huh. um, like with you know, climate change and running out of arable land and clean water. If governments sort of um,
2: instituted more so, you know, population so- um, controls, can I ask you a question? Do you think we are overpopulated in Australia?
1: Yeah, because I mean, look, when we had a drought for 15 years. Melbourne's water supply got down to 24%.
2: Do you know which... the number of countries that desalinate on this planet? Yeah. Like, uh, we simple. are richer, we are wealthier than the Gulf countries, and every single Gulf country uses the sea water. Statistically speaking and economically speaking, Australia, in order to be a prosperous country, we need to have 44 million people on this country to generate a sufficient, sustainable economy. I'll give you a very simple example of our next-door neighbour, Singapore. Do you know how many people live in Singapore on the island? 15 million people. It's the size of Sydney. So... People can can argue about population. Obviously, you have two views and two sides, and people say that we have a global warming. A- actually, as a, as a matter of fact, there is a different view saying that we're going through an ice age.
0: I think the other important thing with population as well is to remember, in terms of population, that the problem are the people that are already here. I mean, it's countries like Australia, where we have a disproportionate footprint in terms of carbon and water usage and everything else and, you know, we're just talking about the Adani coal mine which our government is trying to open up at a time where everybody else across the world is closing them down. Um, the question with overpopulation then is really the disproportionate use of resources by countries like ours and people like us. But I think largely Munjet is right and one of the few moments when this country did kind of tentatively try to have a real argument about this was when Kevin Rudd did try to have a population debate and it very quickly shut down because, again, it's one of those debates which viscerally it seems to make sense that these overpopulated, crowded places are a problem. And it's very hard to then think, no, it's our leafy suburbs that are a problem. Mm. You know, it's, it's, one of those, it's one of those debates that lends itself to to an emotional response rather than a fact-based response. But yes, overpopulation in terms of us is a problem in terms of our resource use, but the country's carrying capacity, especially if we look to different ways of using our land, not just desalination, but obviously there's a lot of research coming forth about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander ways of managing the landscape that we departed from and are now trying to rapidly get back to. this country can carry a much larger number and in many ways needs to carry a much larger number than it does currently. I'll
2: I give you an example. One of the stupid things that the government has done and is doing, you know, the resettlement of these migrants, the 12,000 people that are coming from Syria, they're putting them in Fairfield and Liverpool in a very <coughs> overcrowded, low socioeconomic places, and the excuse is that they should feel like home. Well, this is not home, How for about God's Turac? sake. So um, they need, these people need to have safe place to live in and raise their children. And the best place for these people to come, and they would be more than happy to live in Shepparton, in Armadale, in Mackay, in in Bendigo, in Mildura, where people are starving for working force and they are welcoming. If you put them in in crowded areas like Fairfield and, and Liverpool, they will go out of jobs, they will compete with other people about the resources, and and it will be a miserable situation. Uh, One more, but everyone will have to be brief,
1: because I'm just hoping someone will tell you off now, (laughs) Munjed, since you seem to enjoy that last one.
3: I'll be be brief. Um, I appreciate the uh, sentiment that um, the migration story is complex. However, in uh, what I've heard tonight, there is a larger argument that is connected to very capitalistic ways of thinking. And so I'm wondering if we could complexify this discourse of the immigrant using the toilet paper, um, as, and, in the, and the shops being empty, and thinking of that some of those shops might sell cell phones that Take crystals from the Congo that is producing so many um, refugees at the moment. So, what do we make of that dynamic um, in the argument for uh, more capitalistic ways of thinking of migrants?
0: Well, I think the first thing to note is we did have a model of migration and refugee. and and taking refugees across the world. And it was one that was largely based on citizenship. You come here and you rapidly get citizenship and you become an equal part of the community and life is still difficult, but at least legally you have the same rights and entitlements as everyone else. And there's been a lot of research. I would highly recommend you all go and read one of the best Senate inquiry reports. You don't hear that that rarely. (laughs) It is good. It's called a national disgrace, and it was the 2016 Senate inquiry into migration, and it canvasses it really, really well, and it says that it is actually ap- acutely connected into being temporary in this country or any country, into being vulnerable. It's almost like a con. The, the, the two go together, and. In that context, they're vulnerable in an economy where they can be paid less, where their, you know, their ability to go back to work after injury is limited, their ability to bargain is limited, their ability to attend schools and universities on an equal basis as other people in their community is limited. So the first thing I'd say is that I am struggling to see, except for the most rare occasions of a high-flying CEO or a tech whiz who's paid two hundred thousand dollars I'm really struggling to see why we have agreed to such an almost overarching temporary migrant system which leaves people vulnerable and actually departs from the very kind of basis of a multicultural society that we all now celebrate including the Prime minister so that's the first thing in that in in that scenario the second thing is you're right if, if the argument you're trying to make is what responsibility do we take for creating the conditions in which people have to move? And realistically, given Munjed is the person here who has, you know, been part of a community that has moved or a country that has moved in which Australia has had a military presence, I'm actually going to hand over to him. But all I would say is obviously it makes sense to try and create less situations across the world where we're forcing as a result of our um, involvement in armed conflict millions of people across the world. It just seems obvious to me.
1: Last word to you, Munjir, before I have
2: another one. <laughs> um, look, um, bottom line, we're all racists. We're all proud about our race. We're all proud about what we come from. And we all strongly believe in in things that we were born into, for God's sake. Like... Uh, Muslim is very devout Muslim because they believe that that Islam is the best thing, same as Christianity, and they're all born into these things. There's nothing wrong with that. But what I always try to remind myself and remind my children and my people that I come across is that all is fine as long as we treat each other the way we want to be treated. Believe me, the world will be a much better place.
0: And that's where we leave this episode of The Fifth Estate with Munjid Al-Madeiris and Shen Narayana-Sami joining Sally Warhaft. You can find out more about them and about the series at wheelercentre.com as well as over 100 past episodes of this podcast. Over the next couple of months, The Fifth Estate will be recording live from Bendigo and Melbourne Writers' Festivals. If you'd like to come along, take a look at our calendar online. Otherwise, the podcast will be back very soon. Until then, take care.